This podcast is a production of Bread on the Water Media and RadioForThePeople.com and is engineered by Audio Diner Studios. Our theme music is provided to us by our dear friend Gordon Bonham, whose music can be purchased through GordonBonham.com. Our graphics for this podcast are provided by Kathy Piercy Frine. The podcast is sponsored by Artisan Realtors and Silicon Prairie Ventures. This podcast is intended to give people a glimpse at what it's like to get a bad diagnosis, whether it's cancer or something else, and then go through a traumatic experience. First, we will discuss how my cancer story affected me and my family. Then we will talk about how their experiences affect other patients and their families, including discussions around why you need to advocate for yourself or for your family member. As we explore other patients' experiences, we will talk to some professionals about how to move forward after a traumatic, or not, medical event. I expect this to be a discussion that changes over time to reflect these combined experiences that I and others have had, and what our journeys are like, and the inevitable twists and turns that go along with real-world experiences. Join us on this ride as we attempt to show joy and laughter as well as the tragedy. So this is the inaugural podcast of what is currently titled Normal, What's That Like? Life After Cancer. Um, We may change the title at some point. By the way, my name's Dan Adams, and I'm going to tell you my cancer story today. And uh, we have the, uh, the help of Kevin Friedley, who will be the producer engineer at some point, but today he's going to also... Uh, do some dialogue with us. So, well, yeah, let's uh, let's start, Dan. Thanks for for doing this. I think it's important. As we've discussed, this is not the kind of podcast most people jump into, and they they're looking for murder mysteries to solve, people to get out of prison, um, you know, history that's been dropped. Uh, but saying, hey, let's do a podcast about cancer. Uh, it it it's not something I don't think you, you you're going to run across too much. But I think it's an important uh, thing for people to to hear. And and over the time, we're hoping to talk to some others and how they're dealing with this kind of a thing. So, uh, I guess we best thing to do is start with saying, how was life before cancer to Dan Adams, and how do you view the world? Well, I'm going to touch on what you said first, which is wh- why am I doing this? And I, I think that's critical. The reason I decided to do this is because men in general don't talk about their health. And I have a couple of um, other friends who have been recently, recently in the past few years, diagnosed with cancer, and they're not really comfortable talking about it very much, um, although they seem to want to talk to me um, about it some, some every once in a while. And so since I'm comfortable talking about it, it was suggested to me by a couple of people that maybe I could help other people by talking about my situation, what was helpful to me, what I went through, and all that kind of thing. So that's that's kind of where we're going to start today. Yeah, and and 
I had a recent uh, cancer diagnosis, but it's easy for me to talk about because mine is, you know, I got early stage, uh, slow growing. I mean, the chances of it affect, I, I essentially don't have cancer. I mean, that's the, you have that diagnosis, but in my case, it's a different story. So it's easy for me to just chat with people and tell funny stories about it. But your situation is a little different. And I think that's going to help some folks. I, uh, when they get a similar diagnosis, because as we age, we are going to more of us, we're going to see, and it may not be cancer, maybe related kinds of things. And so I think this, this podcast will be helpful um, to everybody and how to, how to address this kind of stuff. So how was life before you got this diagnosis? And when did you get this diagnosis? Okay. So I'm going to start with life before. Um, and I'm going to start when I turned 60. I'm, I'm now 64. When I got diagnosed, I was 63, but I'm going to talk about when I turned 60, because I decided at some point that um, that I was getting ready to be at an age where I was going to get to retire and do some really cool, fun stuff, travel the world, do all that kind of stuff. And so at age 60, I got real serious about getting healthy. I, I was probably... I, I say I wasn't healthy, but I, I mean, I've run 11 half marathons. I've done a lot of stuff, but I wasn't as healthy as I wanted to be. So I, I hired a personal trainer. My wife and I hired a personal trainer. We lost weight. We got healthy. I lost 30 pounds. I was working out three times a week and I continued to do that until I literally until I was diagnosed. And so I, in that time, um, I, got certified as a scuba diver at 60 years of age. I hiked 46 miles in Glacier National Park with a backpack on my back that weighed 40 pounds. I was pretty good shape for a 60-year-old. So so your message to everyone is don't do that. Uh, drink a lot of beer, lie around the house, get fat, and because, I mean, look how it paid you back, right? Yeah. Well, so, so my message really is do it. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I'll say this in the kindest way possible – Probably if I wasn't in that kind of shape, we wouldn't be doing this interview right now. I wouldn't be here. So um, being strong, being fit was a huge part of me surviving what I went through. And your continued survival. Right. I mean, you're going to continue to stay extremely healthy and work on that. And th those, that's one of the best things you can do as a patient, right? And we'll talk about that at the end. But yeah, I'm, I'm working out three times a week right now for an hour with a personal trainer three times a week. Um, and I, I'm happy every day that I do it. So, um, so the other things I guess I want to mention is I have three adult children and you know, their, their lives are going great. They were doing really cool stuff. They all have great kind of employment. I have two grandchildren. They're, they're little girls that at the time I was diagnosed were just over a year old. Um, and so, you know, it was getting to be a pretty cool time in life. And all of a sudden, things change. So when, when did that change happen? And what, what were the first signs that something was not right with you? Okay, so those are two different questions. But um, the first day I felt really bad was January 1st, 2023. And this had nothing to do with partying the night before. I had not been out the night before. We had been at home. So it had absolutely nothing to do with that. But I had a fever, and I just didn't feel right. And I decided because we have these one-year-old grandchildren at that point that I wasn't going to participate in the whole because we typically do a like New Year's dinner with the family and all that kind of stuff. And I was going to particip participate at a limited level. 
Um, the other thing was, and and uh, this will hopefully be funny for people, my wife changed up the routine. We had always done corned beef and cabbage, and this day she, she decided to do salmon for New Year's Day. So um, no more salmon on New Year's Day, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but so January 1st, I was, I was not feeling well. And, um, and it kind of just progressed from that point. I felt lousy. I had no appetite. I didn't want to eat. And I was doing this night sweats. And, you know, people talk about night sweats. And, you know, their, their night sweats are not that uncommon. But, you know, I, my night sweats were such that the sheets had to be changed. My clothes were so wet I could wring them out and water would fall to the floor. And that was happening every night that we had to change the sheets and my clothes were just drenched with water. So, so coming out of COVID, I mean, the, the previous couple of years that we've been fighting COVID, did you have any thoughts that, oh man, I'm just having a really bad COVID reaction here? Or? Well, we, we were wondering about a lot of things. I had recently, between Christmas and New Year's, I'd gotten the other great thing about having one-year-old granddaughters is if you've ever been around a one to two-year-old, you know, their nose runs all the time. They're constantly coughing and sick. I had gotten a norovirus, an intestinal virus from them. And so, you know, the first thought is, well, this is, I thought I was better, but maybe I'm not better. Um, but, uh, and we thought about COVID and took tests. And of course, the over-the-counter tests were all negative. And so none of that came up. But um, I ultimately called the doctor on the 5th of January as I continued to not feel better, in fact, felt worse. Um, in addition to the night sweats, I started doing this thing where I felt like my whole body was vibrating from the inside. Very odd feeling. Um, and so I called the doctor and we did a virtual visit and he was sure, based on conversation, that it was just the norovirus hadn't gotten out of my system. And so um, we went from there and I went five or six more days till January the 11th or I probably called the office on the 9th or so and said hey I think I need to see the doctor so my doctor wasn't available so he referred me to an associate of his and uh, I went to the doctor's office and I sat in the patient's chair and he sat in the doctor's chair and he asked me about six questions and he's basically getting ready to tell me to leave and he hadn't done anything and he looks at me and goes, you don't look happy. And I said, well, I specifically came here to get examined because I feel terrible. And he said, well, we really believe it's still the norovirus, which at this point would have been two weeks later um, from having that virus. But um, I and I said, look, I am sweating right now. I'm hot. I'm sweating. You didn't take my temperature. You didn't do any blood work. You didn't even examine me. And so he goes, okay. He, and he comes over and he gets behind me and he goes, ooh. Never good when your doctor gets behind you and <laughs> right. says, ooh. ooh. <laughs> and so uh, I said, what's going on? He goes, you are radiating heat. I said, I think I told you that. And so um, he continued to do a reasonable exam and said, well, you know, we're still thinking it's something to do with the norovirus, but we're going to, we're going to sub 
prescribed to you to get on some steroids and to take some antibiotic. So they put me on a Z-Pack, if anybody's ever had one of those, and, and an antibiotic. And I literally did feel better for a few days. Um, but then, you know, I wasn't, like a, six days later, January 17th, I wasn't feeling better. I was feeling worse and I hadn't been eating. I felt awful. And I called again and they said, just go to the emergency room. We, we, we're done guessing at what this is. Go to the emergency room. So, so <laughs> at this point, are, are you still, are you convinced it's not the norovirus at this point and just doing wacky things to you? Are you pretty convinced something major is going on? Or are you still thinking, well, maybe I'm just having trouble. Maybe my, my immune system is just isn't kicking in like it should. So about the time that I went for that exam at the doctor's office, I told my wife, I said, Georgianne, um, something's wrong. This is not the norovirus and this isn't something small. Something's really happening and I don't know what it is. And, and so, you know, I had that feeling about a week earlier. So it wasn't just based on the fact that it was going on long. There was something in you telling you this is bigger. Yeah. I mean, somehow I just felt like there was something going on that wasn't just some virus hanging around because this, again, this weird vibrating feeling I had and this night sweats thing that was just bizarre. I mean, I've never seen, and my wife, who's a registered nurse and been in hospitals for a year, never seen anything like that herself where somebody sweat at that level every time they went to bed at night, that they had to literally in the morning take all the clothes off and you know, change the sheets. And I actually did figure out that if I slept on a towel, we didn't have to change the sheets in the morning. Um, but yeah, it was crazy. Wow. Yeah. So, so on January 17th, I go to the emergency room and they admit me because they don't, you know, they do a few tests and they don't, they don't think it's an easy diagnosis. Um, and so I get admitted. I'm there for three or four days. They've just—they're sure that it's some kind of infection, that I have some infection that they just can't find. Um, and so the the person in charge of my care at that point was an infectious disease doctor, and I really liked him. And he said, "I'm going to figure this out." Um, but I was in there three or four days. I don't remember exactly how long I was there, and I even looked at my my chart thing that I can look at online and it wasn't clear about what day I actually was discharged. I'm sure I could have looked at the hospital bill and figured it out. But, um, but ultimately they discharged me and they said that they wanted me to see a, um, oncologist. So how, so how quickly did we go from the doctor thinking it was an infection to saying, well, maybe you need to see an oncologist. What was the time period there? The, about four days. I mean, because they couldn't find anything. They couldn't find any infection. And 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 we'll I'll talk about this as as time goes on. But I had had during that period, I had had multiple during those four days in the hospital. I had multiple X-rays, a CT scan, and an MRI. Um, and they couldn't find anything on any of those tests. So they're like, well, let's let's try, let's try this. Um, and so they sent me home and said, you're going to see an oncologist 
and I believe I was supposed to see the oncologist on the 24th or something like that, and I'll look at my notes here and tell you for sure. Yeah, I was supposed to go to the oncologist's office on the 24th. And so I, we show up, it's close to home, it's only like a half mile from our house or a mile to where this oncologist's office is, and we go in, and it was, a, I mean, it's January, but it was a decently nice day, it was sunny outside, but I have a, a long sleeve shirt, a fleece jacket, and my warmest coat, and we go inside, and I'm still cold, and um, so they the woman who the receptionist says, well, I'm going to have a nurse come out. And she, they, they said, well, let's give you some warm blanket. So they put me in a warm blanket on top and I didn't take anything else off. I still had everything on and I was still cold. Um, so they eventually called me to go back to the room and I'm still, I, I, my teeth are chattering. I'm that cold and I'm, I'm sure it wasn't cold in the room. Uh, and so, I'm supposed to see the doctor and the nurse goes back and says, I'm going to get you two more warm blankets where they have some kind of blankets they throw in a microwave and they heat up real fast. So at this point I have three blankets on and all my winter gear, including gloves, and I'm still, my teeth are chattering. And so the oncologist comes in the room and he goes, what's going on? And, you know, they took my temperature and it was obviously elevated. And he said, go to the hospital. We, we're, we're not going to go any further. They did just take some blood, but we're not going any further. Go to the hospital. So back to the ER. Um, and so I went back to the ER and kind of had a similar experience. They did a lot of tests and didn't really come up with anything. Uh, but the oncologist who I had seen at that point did come and visit and he wanted me to see a um, to have a bone marrow biopsy done because even though they couldn't find anything, which which you know I, I guess from watching all these uh, medical programs, you know that's one of the first things they do in those medical programs, and when they don't know what's going on, they say, I get a bi bone marrow biopsy. I was surprised at how long it took before that kind popped on the screen, you know, for them to do. It seems like that's a pretty standard thing I, maybe not maybe that's just because the tv well it, it's easy as, as i've described to some other people i think from 500 feet above that sounds really good but they had done a lot of examinations on me they found and done the mris and the ct scans and i had no um, there was no tumor showing up or no enlargements and they you know they felt my lymph nodes and didn't find anything so they were still thinking infection, but we're going to do this kind of as a backup, I think, is kind of where they were at that point. So, so again, I spent a few days in the, in the hospital. The good news is there was a rheumatologist who looked at my chart and he said, well, when you were first sick, you went to the doctor and they gave you steroids and that made you feel better, right? I said, yeah. He goes, let's do that. So, so they prescribed steroids, and I did feel a little bit better. And, but they sent me back home again. Um, and then I was to have a, a bone marrow biopsy on the 13th of February. And, of course, when you have those kind of things, you don't, you don't hear anything right away. But it was really interesting. The, the nurse called me and said, um, you know, we have this scheduled for tomorrow. And, and I had read a little bit, but I, again, I wasn't spending much time because I really felt really bad. 
And um, I said, well, describe this to me. And she goes, well, during the procedure, you don't feel a lot. They're going to, you know, they're going to have enough anesthetic in there that they're going to say, you're going to feel a little pinch and a poke. And that's about all it is. But she said, unfortunately, the next day is not so good. She said, you're going to have this feeling like somebody's taking a ball peen hammer to the back of your spine and tapping on it. And I'm like, that sounds ridiculous. I can't believe that's the case. Well, she was 100% correct. Um, so the next day was pretty miserable. Um, but then I got to feeling a little better. I'm on steroids. Things are a little better. Um, and then on Friday, the 17th of February, I am in my living room because I still don't feel like working. Or I mean, I was doing some work from home, but I didn't feel like working. And this has been a month and a half now that this has been going on. And, you know, we had had some friends come over and said, told me how bad I looked and all this wonderful stuff. Um, That's what friends are for. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we come over to do that yeah. kind of thing. So, gosh, Dan, you look awful. Actually, it was your brother and sister-in-law who oh, did it? that. <laughs> well, they say that anyway. Uh, so, so to make a long story short, he calls me and the conversation goes like this. He says, are you alone? Yes. Um, when do you expect somebody to be there? I said, my wife will be home probably, you know, four or five. She's at work. And he said, well, um, okay, uh, here's the, I'm going to tell you that we found that you have a very aggressive form of cancer, um, B-cell lymphoma, and it's a very aggressive variety. And um, you need to get to the hospital. And I said, well, she'll be home at four or five. No, you need to get to the hospital. So two odd this, things. And doesn't this seem weird to you? It's like all of a sudden it's an emergency, but you've been going a month and a half with this very aggressive, <laughs> but all of a sudden, oh, now you need to be in the hospital immediately. Well, looking back, it seems even weirder because it's a Friday afternoon, about three o'clock. And so... Do you know what happens at a hospital on Friday afternoon about 3 o'clock? Well, that's when everybody gets the golf clubs out. Right, yeah. right. So so I go back to the emergency room. This time I do have a pre-admit through my, through my oncologist. And so it's a little more clear that they just admit me. But, that, you know, I, but there's no rooms available. So I'm in the uh, ER for, I don't know, until sometime in the middle of the night. And then when a room comes available, um, it's on the psych ward. <laughs> it's a locked floor. So I can't have visitors without them checking in. And they have to be buzzed in and out. Um, so, so that was how we started things. Um, so I went, I was admitted on the 17th or the morning of the 18th before I actually got a room. And uh, that's kind of the beginning of the saga. Wow. So at this point, uh, you were you had a lot of pain. You were very, uh, you know, uncomfortable. But you had you lost a lot of weight at this point? Because I know later in the process, the and you were not a fat person, so you didn't have a lot to lose. But you started losing some weight, didn't you? At some point, actually, I was gaining weight. Oh, you were. Uh, fluid. I was gaining. Oh, right, right. I was gaining weight from fluid. So I'm normally at this point in time around 210, probably with the holidays, I was a little higher than that. 
maybe 215. Uh, but they put me on the scales the first the morning that I'm actually in a room and I'm 226 pounds. And they uh, listened with a stethoscope. I can't say that word. Stethoscope. And I had had an MRI, another MRI, and another CAT scan, and several x-rays by then. Um, and they said, well, you have this fluid in your abdomen. We call it ascites. And there's this procedure we do called paracentesis that we go in and take that fluid off. Okay? So we're going to do that like now. And I'm like, what do you mean like now? Like as soon as they tell me they're going to do it, somebody's at the door and says, we're ready to take you. And I'm like, okay. So if you've never had a paracentesis, I've had five of them now, but the procedure is pretty quick, but they, they do a little bit of radiology and they find out where the fluid is. They look, you know, while you're there and they take a needle about five inches long and pierce it into you and they suck the fluid out. So it's really, and you get, and they leave the room and let you watch. And then you're supposed to tell them when it's when not, when, when it's not, there's nothing going through the tube anymore. So, so I did that. Did you get paid for that? Uh, yeah. Mean, you do half the job right there. Uh, yeah. I think you ought to get a little, uh... um, no payment for that, but it, but it, I mean, just watching them stick that needle in you was bad enough. Um, Please, but, please tell me they, they deaden you first. Uh, they, they do local anesthesia. So, but you're watching, yeah. you know, so it's not very fun to watch. I've learned the technique. I have a thing called an eyelid, and I close that when people are doing stuff that I don't want to watch. So you don't know how funny that is, your, your, <laughs> your, your statement. Um, okay. Because I wasn't eating, but I had gained 10 pounds. Um, the fluid in my abdomen, I had this paracentesis. But they also tell me, you know, I'd had this procedure February 13th. We're now the 18th. And they're saying, we're still waiting on the pathology report. So I'm like, what is going on? But, you know, I'm still not, I still don't want to eat anything. Food doesn't taste good to me. Um, nothing tastes good. The only thing I wanted was ice cold water, which obviously that's good that I was consuming something and I was trying to eat a little bit of food but I really didn't want to eat any food um, and they were frustrated with me but nothing I mean it tasted terrible no matter what it was diet Pepsi which if anybody knows me diet Pepsi is like my go-to drink all the time it tasted horrible was, was it I've talked to some folks who are going through chemo and other treatments that it had a metallic taste was it that you're feeling or was it just something else no it tasted absolutely terrible i mean it was it was revolting to i mean and as was most food the only things that for some reason that seemed good to me was anything that was just like completely ice cold i really um you know hamburgers they tried all kinds of stuff and nothing tasted good to me um so uh, you know, so, so for a couple of days later, you know, we, again, we've done an MRI, we've done a CT scan, done multiple x-rays. Um, I don't know how many, um, uh, 
cardio uh, cardio scans I've had. But this is after you've got a diagnosis of B cell lymphoma, right? So what are they looking for now? Solid tumors or or what? Well, they're looking for more specific pathology on the specific kind of B cell lymphoma I have, and also there's a couple of things they're looking. One, they're looking for a marker. Um, that would help with treatment that makes the treatment work better. An, an, an immunotherapy of some kind? That's right, want to target right, that. Okay. right. And, and they're also trying to eliminate things. So, you know, um, so, so they're trying to figure out, they haven't figured out exactly where, at this point, where the cancer is. Um, so they're still trying to, to locate that. And so, you know, we do another CT scan. And within a few days of that, um, they do find and confirm that it's in my spine. But I've also then, in the several days thereabouts, I've had a um, PET scan, which if you most people don't know what a PET scan is because if you haven't had cancer, you're not going to have a PET scan. But a PET scan is a CT scan, but they inject a liquid and they say it's sugar i don't think it's exactly sugar but cancer loves what they inject into you and so you wait 45 minutes after you get this injection and then they put you in this what amounts to a ct scanner and they um, also give you radioactive dye and the cancer cells will light up so i've gone through that procedure and then um, it's showing in my liver, but they can't confirm that it's the same cancer. So now we're talking, they're trying to decide, well, do I have something called a double hit, which means two different kinds of cancer simultaneously. So my, um, I'm going to stop for a minute and say, first of all, my two daughter, my three daughters and my wife are with me virtually every minute of the time I'm in the hospital from this third hospitalization to this point. Um, and they're also, I have in front of me what I would call a journal type of notebook. And from the date of February 17th forward, my two of my daughters in particular are writing everything that transpires, all the test results, everything every doctor said. And so they're hearing all this stuff. You know, they're hearing this double hit. There's also something called HLH, which is a type of um, lymph. Uh, it's a subculture of the B cell lymphoma that is like you don't recover from. You're going to die. And so and they don't know yet. They don't know yet oh. that. And so they're also telling them this double hit thing. So my daughters are like researching all this stuff and. You know, they all have these looks in their faces like they're not, they're, they're con very concerned. And at this point, I've been sick enough that I'm not thinking clearly. Well, that's what I was going to ask about because I remember visiting you on one point and it, and it was clear you were <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> I visited you more than one point, but the one point you were clearly, um, I mean, just, it wasn't you. And I just wonder I, did you feel in a daze? How did you mentally feel during? This I was very disconnected. I mean, I, I, I was. It was. 
there were times I felt like it was almost an out-of-body experience, and other times where I just, I, I admittedly knew that I wasn't capable of making decisions or thinking clearly, and that was very odd for me because I'm, I'm the kind of person who normally, the more that's going on, the better I react. I, I mean, I I kind of thrive on chaos a little bit. So, so. In, in, a, in a strange sort of way, did this protect you from some of the horrors that they were throwing at you, the potential horrors they were throwing at you? Did yeah, this kind of I wasn't as concerned as they were, everybody else right. was. So in a right. sense, it was almost a blessing that you were kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it, I mean, in retrospect, what the doctors say is that the, the cancer was hitting me so hard that my body was putting all its energy towards fighting the cancer and my brain was just like hanging out there. Yeah. It was kind of sort of disconnected, but not really. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was, that was a wild thing. But again, my kids and my wife were just amazing in the, and again, I have this notebook in front of me and I'll flash it. You guys can't see it. Obviously this is a verbal thing only, but you know, they have the numbers written down of the test results, and they were just outstanding. So how long did they have to go with the knowledge that this might be this double hit or this H and what was it? What was H? Whatever. We didn't get the final, and I, there's a couple other comments I'm going to make in the meantime, but um, we didn't get the final pathology report until March the 8th. So I first was sick January 1st. We had the final pathology on March 8th. Now, I will say I did have my first chemotherapy treatment before we actually got the final pathology report. Um, so kind of in this period of time, there's a couple of, of, Kevin mentioned the, you know, you've got these blinder things on your eyes that you close your eyes and you just don't watch. Well, the kids in this notebook, they wrote, there were a few things that happened along the way that they thought were funny that I would really appreciate later, but they weren't sure I was connected enough to appreciate them at the time. This one, the first one I was connected enough to appreciate at the time. And that was, they kept asking me, you know, because I slept a lot. I mean, I was asleep more than I was awake. And I think, again, that was my body's reaction was I just wanted to sleep. Um, and I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to do anything. But when I was awake, I would chat and so forth. But anyway, they would say, I'd wake up and the blinds would be open in the room. And, you know, son, we were, we were, we, uh, my room was east facing at Methodist. And so um, the sun would be streaming in the room and they say, well, do you want us to close the blinds? And I said, I have these two things called eyelids. <laughs> if the sun is shining, I can close my eyes. You guys do what's comfortable for you. So, so that became, we did that a lot and, and it was funny. and It was funny for all of us. Um, but you know, we finally, so, so weight gain, I guess is the other thing. So there, 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 now not only did I have the ascites, which is part evidently a result of the cancer, they're giving me fluids. And so at this point, um, by the 23rd of February, I weigh 235 pounds. I've gained another 10 pounds and I'm not eating. Um, we got on the 24th of that month, we did find a, we got a partial um, pathology report and it, 
it told them something that really helped them. But again, I wasn't at a point where it was meant anything to me. They told me my cancer was extra nodal, which I would think extra means more. It's but outside of, right? Outside of. So I did not have, my cancer is not in a lymph node. It's at a cellular level. It's individual cells that are cancer cells, you and they aren't grouped together. Like, you just don't do anything like anyone else. I, I don't. Um, <laughs> in fact, my daughter, Abby, said if one more doctor says atypical, I'm going to strangle him. And I think she actually did tell one of the doctors, if you say atypical again, <laughs> I don't think she told him what the what Result she was going to do, yeah, but, but she said, if you say atypical again. So yeah, so so my cancer at that point is extranodal. And I, I will tell you, I've, I've done the research since then. Extranodal only lymphoma is like 0.01% of the cases. It's a very, very small amount. And so we don't have all of the pathology at that point. But what we do know is they've confirmed it's in my spine. And so most extranodal lymphoma is in the gastrointestinal. Um, and I'm not having any problems there. So again, and you won't hit me for saying this, it, you were atypical. I was atypical. Okay, all right. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Normal, What's That Like? Please join us in our next episode when Dan continues his journey.